you so much for the sponsorship. And uh, let us get going. So we are up to Parshas Emor, uh, which is a big Parsha of uh, a big focus on Kohanim. And when we focus on Kohanim, we're supposed to recognize that every Jew is, we're taught that we are a Mamleches Kohanim. We are a nation of priests, Vigay Kaddish, and holy people. So the same way there's Kohanim for the Jewish people, the Jewish people, so to speak, are responsible to be the Kohanim for the rest of society. We're responsible to be Kohanim for the rest of the world. Everybody has their, um, uh, each of us have our, our own uh, um, leadership place, whether we know it or not. It's a, it's a reality. It doesn't change. Right? Hashem says I'm close to every Jew, whether you like it or not. Right? A Jew is a Jew. It's not going to change anything. So too, we're a mamlachas kahanim. It doesn't, nothing's going to change whether or not um, we are, uh, we feel like we're ready for it or up for it. So as we go through the mitzvahs for kahanim, let's keep in mind some messages that we can and should be taken for ourselves. So the parsha begins with Parach HaFalith, chapter 21. Hashem says to Moshe, Emar ala kohanim, say to the kohanim, B'nai Aaron, the sons of Aaron. And say to them, for a soul, they should not become among their people. So this is an initial um, responsibility for Kohanim to not become tummy mace, to not become impure, to, uh, to not become impure to a dead person. And the um, The question is, what's the big deal, right? Maybe attend the funeral, pay pay your last respects. What's what's the deal for the kahanim? So there's a number of approaches we could take here. I just want to um, speculate a little bit, have a little speculation, and that is, it's interesting that for many people, religion becomes important at the end of life. And I don't just mean for us individually towards the end of life. That, that's important that that happens because we realize that our bodies and our souls don't live in this world forever. But I'm referring to even people who are not dealing for them personally end of life, people who, are, people who have lost loved ones. For example, people when, when they lose a loved one, somebody loses a parent, they're more prone to show up to shul for Yiskar. They're more prone to show up to shul for, uh, for a Kaddish. Because they, they want to do something for the person that has passed on. And in unfortunate reality, it's, it's, I shouldn't call it, it's a fortunate but unfortunate reality, is that um, what can happen is that Judaism can sometimes become a religion of the dead. It's something you connect to when there's a problem, when there's, when there's a death. And I feel like I need to, I need to connect beyond it. And the truth is that Yiddishkeit is really a religion for the living. It's it's a Torah schayim. It's a it's a Torah it's a Torah of life. And there is a concept. I just want to share. And I just want to share this this concept. And I got this from my mother and my mother's mother, my bubby pair and my mother. They have a custom, and this is not a minute to take on for ourselves. Okay, but I just want to. My my grandmother never stepped foot in a cemetery. My mother's mother would not step foot in the cemetery. She said, the custom in our family is that women don't go to cemetery. That was her custom. Why? Why? 
Because Adam named Chava the name Chava, which means the mother of all beings. My grandmother would say that a Jewish woman <coughs> is somebody who brings life to Kal Yisrael. We don't belong in cemeteries until it's our time to be there. That was her thing. Now, this is not the accepted Mahalach and accepted approach. My mother, my own mother, also kept that minug until my father passed away. The first time my mother went into a cemetery was by my was by my father's funeral, and until today, I believe some of my sisters also they've uh, they've accepted this idea of women being people who are there to represent life of Klal Yisrael, as opposed to being now. The, it doesn't mean that any other that if we've been to Leviah's, I don't want to have some to make it. There's a mitzvah to attend the Leviah. If you take on this custom, you're actually losing out on some mitzvahs. Okay, so this is not if like if it's not something that's. I don't know how it started or where it started, but I'll tell you some of the nuance of it, where it comes from. Some of the nuance of where it comes from is that the um, what my grandmother would share with us is this idea of that if we get caught up in the death of things. By definition, we're not going to be completely focused and committed to the life of things. We're here to live. That was her thing. I'm here to live. I'm not living my Judaism, running from cemetery to cemetery and doing this thing. I'm here to. I'm here, I'm here to live. I'm here to accomplish. However, Hakadosh Baruch Hu wants me to accomplish. That's what I'm here to do. To such an extent where her family separated from from cemeteries, like to, to that extent. This. this Concept also connects with Kohanim, with especially a uh, it connects with Kohanim. What Kohanim are here to do is death means the soul is no longer inside the body. The Kohanim's job was to focus on the soul. That's their job. Their their job was to build the soul. They didn't receive a part of Eretz Yisrael. They didn't get a, a a plot in the land of Israel. The land of Israel was divided amongst twelve tribes, excluding the tribe of Levi. So how was it 12? Because we know that the tribe of Joseph was divided in two. Ephraim and Manasseh, right? That tribe had two. Levi didn't get any land. They, we supported them. They were the ones who were involved in We supported them, and they focused on the neshama. They focused on the spiritual, on, on, the, uh, on the soul side of things. If there's no soul, Kahanim don't belong there. The Kahanim, Lenefeshleyetam Abamav, a Kayan doesn't, a Kayan's there when there's a soul. You're bringing life to Kali's soul. You're working on the, the spiritual uh, uh, neshama side of Klal Yisrael and lenefesh of unless it's well, we're going to see there's some exceptions if it's an immediate family relative and apparently the Torah is going to tell us that overrides this idea for example a Kohen is permitted to uh, our standard Kohen not a Kohen Gadol is permitted to become impure to two from the generation above two from the same generation and two from the younger generation plus a spouse so it goes like this. A Kohen could, be, could become impure to parents, mom and dad, two from the generation above, brother, sister, same generation, son, daughter, generation below. And then spouse, which is not a, which is not a, a blood relative, those the seven relatives. Outside of those seven relatives, the Kohanim were really meant to be focused on, on uh, the Nishamas. Now, we'll see, okay, so this is a beautiful thing, right? It's a nice idea for, for a Kohen. I want to tell you something. You look at a little Kohen, Nowadays, and you say to a you say to a kid who's a teenager, you know, all your friends are playing soccer 
on uh, Blackberry and, you know, you can't play. You can't play because there's a Jewish cemetery right there. Or if the ball goes over the fence, this Kayan can't get the ball, but all his friends can get the ball. Sometimes Judaism becomes to uh, become some people could afternoon becomes uh, it, it starts to become a little bit of a uh, a thorn to them becomes a thorn to them right so some some museums some museums okay right okay but you know back then you know I think it was it was it was uh, more common but there's there's more restrictions so. Um, a Cohen also has to get this apart uh, has to get this uh, message in an appropriate fashion in a beautiful way so listen to how listen to how the Chassam Seifer reads, reads this passage this is fantastic Hashem says to Moshe say to the Kohanim B'nai Aaron it seems redundant says the Chassam Seifer no no say to the Kohanim the words you're going to tell them are you are B'nai Aaron say to the Kohanim the following words B'nai Aaron you are the children of iron. And therefore, because of your holiness, there's more responsibility. But you don't talk down to them as if like, oh, you have a bigger issue. You have, you have, you have more responsibility than everybody else. You, you build somebody up. The Chazal teach us that there's a, there's a verse from Shomo HaMalach. Rebuke a wise person and he will love you. Altoichach letz do not rebuke a fool, perhaps they will come to hate you. Rebuke a wise person, because they'll love you. Rebuke a fool, and then they'll hate you. So don't rebuke them. Do not rebuke a fool. That's the difference between a wise person, somebody who has got this, what we call in today's day and age, a growth mindset. Thank you so much. Now I know what to do in a better way. And then a let, somebody who scorns, and somebody's like, don't tell me what to do. They're actually going to come, they're actually gonna come to, uh, to hate that's what Shlomo Melech teaches us. There's a time and place to give, uh, to, to give rebuke. If it's somebody who's, who's going to appreciate it, give it. If it's always going to be detrimental, don't give that rebuke. So the Chassam Seifer points out that there's another way to, to read this if you, if you move the comma, which is, Al Teichach, do not rebuke by saying, let's, you're a, you're a loser, you're a scorner. You look at somebody, who are you talking in Shul? Who are you? Are you speaking Lashon Hara? Who do you think you are speaking Lashon Hara? You know what's going to happen? That person going to be like, who are you? What do you mean? Who am I? Who am I? Who are you? You go away. Am I listening to you? Al Teichach, don't rebuke by saying you're a let's. That's how the Chassam Seifer reads it, by moving the comma. Not only don't, don't, don't rebuke a scorner, don't rebuke somebody by saying, you're a, scorner, you're a loser. Because then they're going to come to hate you. Rather, how do you rebuke somebody? Hecheach, rebuke them by saying, Chacham, you're a Chacham. It's pasnesh, it's beneath you. You're such an important person. You know something? We're much better than that. Then by Ahevcha, they know you respect them, they're going to come to love you, they're going to appreciate the fact that you did it out of love. So the Chassam Seifer explains the Pasuk this way as well. When we're speaking to the B'nai Aaron, the children from the Kahuna, Hashem's instructing Maisha, say to them, not, you guys got to do this, your Kahana. There's a way to do it. The way to do it is, say, B'nai Aaron. You guys are elevated. You have a higher level of Kedusha. You're, you're here to focus on the Neshama, the, the, the main crux of Klal Yisrael. And therefore, lenefesh layitam abamov to a uh, to a person, they um, they should not become impure in their uh, amongst um, amongst their uh, amongst their people. And yeah. Well, I heard that if you shouldn't give tovah if you don't know how, you have to know how to. Yeah. So like, where, where Sometimes you know how. 
Sometimes you have to balance it. Sometimes, you know what? Sometimes you're going to get it wrong. You're right, but you tried. You have to think. The, the, the main thing is to think. You know, like we've discussed a few times, like the, the Bali Musar teach us that serving Hashem is not making the right choice. Serving Hashem is struggling to make the right choice. I might end up, I, I might end up completely making the wrong decision. But the fact that I struggled and tried to make the right decision proves that I'm an Ever Hashem. I, I, I cared enough to think about whether this is right or wrong. It's a very important idea, right? We could come up with the... Not, I'm not excusing doing the wrong thing, right? But what happens is... If I end up doing the wrong thing, but I... It's because I was well-intentioned and I wanted to do the Ratzon Hashem. I just ended up doing the wrong thing. I'm, I, I still serve Hashem to this. I serve Hashem. I, I'm, uh, you know, so going to your... You know, going to your idea of... Rebuke somebody if it's going to be effective. Don't rebuke somebody if it's going to be detrimental. What happens if you don't know? Try your best. That's you know that's that's the eitzah. That's the eitzah. Try your best. You know it's uh, some you know sometimes what it means. I find personally just what I try to do is if I'm unsure, I'll start it. And if they pick up on it, fine. If they don't pick up on it, that's fine too. You know, but I'll try to bring it bring it around. Another thing that I'll try to do, and again, this is it's going to depend on the situation um, with my own children and some going on. I I don't generally do not rebuke them at the time that they're doing something. I'll usually because then it's just going to turn into you know, uh, no matter what, it's going to turn into disagreement. So I find a different opportunity to bring it up, not even about them, but bring up the idea at the Shabbos table. Or um, you know, some, it, it could even be an opinion. Not something they did wrong, but they'll give an opinion about yeah, uh, the the Rebbe in class said this, or the Mora and this Rabbi told me this halacha. It's ridiculous halacha, uh, you know, and something like that. I never heard of such a thing. Um, where did you get this from? And he's making stuff up. Okay, so then there's you you stick up, you know, for you know you. you <clears throat> Let me say, first you tell them to be a human being, and then we'll talk about halacha. That's what I do, personally, right? Don't you want to talk about people like that in our house, right? We don't, we don't talk down to people. But then as far as how that halacha plays out, if it's really a thing, so bring it up in a different context. But it takes, it takes finesse, it really does. And, and you're not always going to get it right. It, that's, that's the MS. We're not always, always going to get it right. Yeah. Before doing the avoda, they wash their feet from the kiyar. Uh, we wash our hands. They do remove their shoes because the Shechina, the divine presence, descends upon their hands, which is why people have a custom to not look and co- or cover their eyes. Um, and when you stand on holy ground, you remove your shoes. Like Moshe removed his shoes by, um, by the burning bush. And whenever there's... In the Beis HaMikdash, the Kohanim did not wear any shoes, so their, their feet would be directly touching uh, the, marble, uh, the marble floors. Um, but nowadays, the Kohanim rinse their hands and remove their shoes. They don't actually uh, wash their feet. So somebody's not doing it for them. They do it themselves. The Levium wash their hands. So in Shul, let's say on a holiday, on Yom Tif, before they go up to Duchim, so somebody in Shul will announce Kohanim and Levium. And all the Kohanim and Levium go to the washing stations right outside the Shul. The Kohanim, uh, usually there's less Kohanim than Levium. That's not always in every show, but that's sensible how it should be because the Kohanim are only one family from the whole Shevet Levi. So there's usually going to be less Kohanim on the VM. And the Kohen will stand by the basin, the sink, 
and they'll usually have a few Leviim at a time helping pour the water on the Kohen's hands. And this way you can have three or four Leviim um, doing their avoda uh, for the Kohen. That's generally... I mean, that's what we do nowadays, practically speaking. Um, that, that's what we do. Now, <clears throat> the tribe of Levi, Levites. The Levites wash the hands of the Kohanim before they, they go to give, uh, to give the blessing. Um, an, another idea to notice in this Pasuk of lifting people up, Ramesha Feinstein points out that there's a big difference in the Hebrew language. It's important to know as whenever we learn Chumash between Vayomer and Vayadaber. Vayomer means to say, Vayadaber means to speak. The difference in Lashon Kodesh, in the Holy Tongue, between saying and speaking is that Vayomer is soft, I said it, speaking has firmness to it. And Hashem says to Moshe, say to the Kohanim, Va'amarta alehem, and they should that everything should be done in a in a soft manner because the role of kohanim, yes, they have more responsibilities, but they need to be soft with us in order to be an effective leader and an effective teacher. They themselves need to have a gishmak in what they're doing. So the kohanim themselves need to appreciate it. Going back to the idea of say to them, you are bnei Aaron, you're elevated. If they themselves uh, appreciate their responsibility. Mm-hmm as opposed to feeling it like it's restrictions and it's a pain in the neck that I can't go to a funeral or whatever it is, they're not going to be effective leaders. So Maisha is also tra- training the Kohanim how to be effective leaders in Klal Yisrael. That the, the approach, what we call the, there's four parts of Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is broken up into four, into four compartments. Okay? There's something called the fifth chilek of Shulchan Aruch. It doesn't exist. But it's fa- it's like it's famously people like people say where, where do you have it, where is it? It's called the fifth chelik of Shulchan Aruch, which means if you learn the first four, you'll know there's a fifth. Some things aren't written specifically, but you from if you know the other four, there's other expectations that are there in the in the yeshiva show world. It's like yeah, we're proven the fifth chelik of Shulchan Aruch, right? In other words, don't just ask me where. Like first learn the first four, and then you'll understand what I'm saying. Okay, so that's that's. Uh, that's the idea that Ramesha is, is bringing out, that the Kahanim need to appreciate what, what Yiddishkeit and what their responsibility is about. Therefore, they'll have this, what we'll call the fifth chelik of Shulchan Aruch, and they'll be able to give that over um, to, uh, give it over to Klai Yisrael. Okay. Kiyim l'she'er ha'karavei lov li'imo lovev livno vito la'achiv. We have some exceptions that we are allowed to become Impure to Ula Khosra Basula Krova Elava Shalaisa Lish La Yitama, a single sister who's not married. Lo Yitama Bal Bahamov, Lehechaloi, um a husband may not make himself uh impure. In other, in other words, if let's say you have a Kohen who's married to a divorcee. So that is a valid marriage, but it's against Halacha. So there, if the wife passes away, the husband's not allowed to attend the funeral. That's what Pasuk Dalit is tell, telling us, that if you have a husband who has legitimate marriage, and there's, it's interesting, in Halacha, not every, um, not every Avera, we'll call it, transgression, is equal. Not every Avera is uh, created equal. Uh, interestingly, it's, a fascin- it's such a beautiful idea. When it comes to Averos, we know the levels of Averos. It's a very interesting thing. For example, certain sins, we say, okay, it's a transgression. Certain sins, it's like, okay, you didn't fulfill it. Okay, so, for example, there's a mitzvah to, uh, you know, uh, if you see, have opportunity for chesed to do chesed, right? You, you see somebody needs help, so there's a mitzvah, there's a command to go help them. Let's say I don't. 
So you didn't fulfill a positive commandment. Okay? Lulav and Esrik is a time-bound mitzvah, so men are obligated to do it. Women have a mitzvah too, but not the same obligation as men because it's a time-bound mitzvah. So if I don't fulfill the mitzvah of Lulav, did I actively do a transgression? Or did I say I lost on the mitzvah of Lulav? So there's different levels. And then you have certain transgressions. The Torah will tell us um, the consequence is lashes. The consequence is uh, death. The consequence is, you know, you've transgressed and you're going to bring a sin off, uh, uh, a guilt offering. So we, we find different levels within transgressions. What's fascinating is that we don't find reward. We don't find different level of reward for mitzvahs. There's two mitzvahs that we get a little hint about, but uh, like, you know, respecting your parents and sending away the mother bird where you're blessed with a long life. But again, that's, that's also connected to the physical world. Like how much reward we get for performing mitzvahs, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't tell us. The Torah, and the Gemara explains why. The Gemara says it's on purpose. Because Hashem doesn't want, what happens is people are going to approach Judaism like it's a business. And they're going to say, oh, I get $10 million for every hour of Shabbos I keep. And I get uh, $100,000 uh, $100, in Gan Eden for uh, saving somebody's life. Yeah, I'll let them die and I'll keep Shabbos. Right? Right? No, people are going to be like, like the, you start. And the Gemara says, and, but the, the truth of mitzvahs is, called the chassid shaita. The Gemara talks about a chassid shaita, a pious fool. There's pious fools. Like people who think they're being religious and, and they're just being, they're absolutely foolish. Like they're making a terrible mistake in how they're doing it. So the Gemara explains that the mitzvahs are like, an, are like a beautiful field that a king wants planted. And he wants all different things to make it beautiful. And he, if he were to offer different, uh, tell the laborers different rewards that they will get for different trees, they're all going to plant a specific tree. And that's not, that's not his goal. Every mitzvah that we have connects to our lives and, and builds a more beautiful and robust uh, um, neshama. And therefore, every, Hashem wants us in every mitzvah. See, purposely doesn't tell us. Purposely, there's no, there's no limits on, or, or there's no uh, really uh, explanation of what that, uh, what that uh, reward is. And that message doesn't really matter. <laughs> it doesn't really matter how much reward it is because our ultimate goal, like we've been learning in Bovavi, is to build a relationship. That's our goal. Right? We don't serve Hashem for reward. That, that's unhealthy. That's, as we've learned, as we've spoken about together, that's what kids do. Right? That's what kids do. If I do this, how much are you going to pay me? If I do this, what, what it is. So we're not supposed to serve Hashem, even for Olam Haba. People think, and I, is, you know, it's, 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 I'm not going to say it's terrible. I think it's just sad that people think we're in this world to get to the next world. I think it's so sad. Because then I'm just living, again, I'm, I'm living for my... Why am I living here? Why, why should I suffer in Olam Hazah? Why should I struggle with Oh, because there, Hashem's going to give you Olam Haba. There's something... Okay, so that's like telling somebody, like, it's, it's reciprocal. I'm not really serving Hashem for Hashem. I'm serving Hashem for me, so that after I pass away, I'm going to receive Olam Haba. I'm still doing everything selfishly. Right? It's, not, it's not because... Ultimately, it's... Why do we do what we do? Because we're a chelak aleka, we're, a, we're from the Rebbein Shalom, we're a piece of the Rebbein Shalom, and the more mitzvahs I do, the more connected I am to Hashem. There's a side perk to being connected and in a healthy relationship. 
The side perk is you get all the reward that's available because God's God. God's the eternal. So Olam Haba is a side perk of being in a healthy relationship with Hashem. Well, our goal in this world is to be in the healthiest relationship with Hashem that we could possibly be in. So if Hashem wants me to do this mitzvah, I'm going to do this mitzvah. If He wants me to stay away from this, this. Why? Because of, because of my relationship. I, you know, that's, that's what we do. That's what you do within relationships. It's not, it can't be, it can't be, uh, uh, relationships can't be a one-way street where I want, you know, I, I feel spiritual, therefore I'm choosing to serve Hashem. Hashem says, no, this is how you could show me love too. You could show me love by performing, uh, by performing mitzvahs. So when we perform the mitzvahs, we're, we're building our relationship. And then when you're in, when you're in a relationship with the creator of the world, you got everything going for you. Yeah, that's everything, everything else falls into place. Yeah. Correct. That's right. Right, but it's we're, we're given a physical application of it, though. There's a reason why the Torah uses a word that we can connect with physically. But you're right. It's arichas yom, but we don't truly know what what arichas yom. Absolutely, and the Gemara explains that it's referring to olam right? But it's interesting that we don't. So. The other mitzvahs were not promised to Olam right? So it's given us the, it's given us a physical taste. It gives us a physical taste of what it is. Yeah. I'm confused when you said that, uh, like a poem can marry a divorcee, and it's a valid marriage. Yeah. It's not a, it's against the law, so how can it be a valid marriage if it's not? A Good. So anything the Gemara teaches me, um, and this pasuk says it straight out, that there are certain things that work, but it's a transgression. Other things don't work. If you have somebody who's officiates at a gay marriage, okay, you did not officiate at a gay marriage. You stood under a chuppah with two men, and nothing happened. It doesn't make a difference. If two women stand under a chuppah together, and one puts a ring on the other finger, it doesn't matter if a rabbi officiated, you're not married. By definition, it's not, a, it's not no matter what you want to say, because marriage is kiyikach ish isha, when you have a man and a woman. It's an impossible reality. Even if somebody is a married woman who does not receive a divorce, if she goes over to another man, stands under a chuppah, and you have somebody officiating the marriage, and he puts a ring on her finger, he put a ring on a married woman's finger, you're not married. It's not married. He doesn't have to give her a get. She, she has, he, he gave her a gift of a ring. I mean... He gave a married woman a gift of ring. It's completely not valid. It doesn't make a difference what happened. It, it doesn't work. It, you know, it doesn't work. If a Kohen marries a divorcee, it works, but it's a transgression. Anything that's a love, anything where the consequence is a negative transgression, but it doesn't have the obligation of karis involved, the obligation of skila, so it's going to be a valid marriage. It's a valid marriage. The same thing holds true with somebody who's a legal... Uh, mamzer There's different right? If somebody's a mamzer Mamzer In English is translated As a bastard It's not the. It, it's really I think a bastard in, in American society Is I don't know how they translate it But in halacha No like in reality I don't know who would be Considered such a thing But in halacha A mamzer is somebody Who would come from a marriage That wouldn't be valid So if a Kohen Marries a divorcee That child is not a mamzer If a If a married woman has an affair with somebody else, since that marriage is not going, it doesn't even work. It's, whether or not they got married, but they had an affair, the child would be considered a halachic mamzer. So what about, what about children of gay men? Aren't, huh? 
I no. don't children of Gator. They're they're in some other category. I don't remember. Regular Israel. Regular Israel. There might be a, there might be something if they converted marrying Kahanim might be a thing, no, but no, they're no, not. No, no, no. I heard that the children of converts are in a separate category where they can only marry children of converts. I don't remember. Not sure. Not sure. No. Not sure. No. I want to ask Whoever slightly. told you that, you got to tell them it's not true. 100% <laughs> no, uh, Very slightly connected to the Mist of Eros. If I, I mean, I'll, I'll I made my first draw, right? Yeah. But I get distracted, I'm reading a book, and whatever, and then I can't remember if I said the bracha or not. Am I better off to say Mist of Bracha or go ahead and say the bracha and maybe I said it twice? So in general, Unless it's a benching, which is a bracha samazan, in general, you never say a bracha if you're unsure whether you have to. Because every blessing that we make is rabbinic. Anytime you're in doubt about a rabbinic obligation, you don't do it. If you're in doubt about a biblical obligation, you do. So since in the Torah, the only blessing that's mentioned is v'achalta v'savata uveirachta. You eat, you're satisfied, you make a bracha. That's the only blessing we find that's biblical. And if you're in doubt about benching, you would recite benching. But any other bracha, whether it's a bracha before food, if you're unsure, you wouldn't make it. Or a bracha, you wouldn't make that bracha. You wouldn't make that bracha. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. A Jewish woman who marries a non-Jew. Yeah. Their child is still Jewish because the mother is Jewish. Correct. Right? And that puts the, and they can marry Jewish. Yeah. It's not an issue. Non-issue. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Very good. Very good. You bring up an exception to the rule. One exception to the rule is let's say you have somebody who's not Jewish, that a non-Jewish man that marries marries a Jewish woman. In the Torah, it's not called a marriage. Right. Doesn't make a difference. You're not halachically married. No such thing as a get. You're, you're not. It's an it's an impossibility for there to be a Jewish marriage that's an intermarriage. It won't work. It's kind of like a married woman and, and somebody else. But the Gemara Nabai Zara and other places brings various proofs and about how that transgression is written where the Torah still considers the child a regular Yisrael. And even though, if there would be a marriage, it wouldn't be valid, that child is not considered a mamzer. That is, one, that is, that is an exception to the rule. And, yeah. yeah. What if two men were Jewish adopt a child? Yeah. Is that child no. No. Any adopted child, even even a, adopt even a, a Jewish couple that adopts a child, they raise the child in a Jewish fashion. When the child becomes an adult, for a girl at age twelve and for a boy at age thirteen, we uh, they need to be told that whether they want to opt into Judaism or whether they want to opt out of Judaism, and then it's their it's their decision whether. Uh, then they would be Jewish if they continued living a life of Torah and mitzvahs at that time. But it, would, it does make a difference about uh, who the parents are. It doesn't, uh, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a matter of whether the child himself is willing to accept, uh, willing to accept Torah and mitzvahs. And, and the reason why we're careful about that is because that's how we became a people. We became a Jewish nation, not only, um, or not when we were descendants of Avram Yisrael and Yaakov, but it happened to be the sense of our music in Yaakov became Jewish, so to speak, at Har Sinai, coming up in three weeks, right? Shavuos is three weeks from tonight. And by when we accepted the Torah, 
we became Jewish, so too, in order to be considered Jewish, you have to accept the Torah, which leads to an interesting uh, incident. And uh, I must have shared this before, but it's, it's, uh, it's worthwhile. And uh, you get a lot of siyat deshmaya, Hashem just throws things in your mind. But when we were living in Eretz Yisrael, so Zelda and I did something called Shabbat experience. Well, it's Shabbat experience, so uh, birthright brings groups of young Jewish uh, or non-Jewish men and women to Eretz Yisrael, uh, groups of 40 at a time, and a lot of their tour groups are not religious. And Birthright spends tens of millions of dollars annually on this, and a few years into it, they realized they weren't getting anywhere. Their, their goal was to uh, focus on uh, Jewish identity, and the secular tour guides that were bringing these uh, young men and women around were bringing them to Israel for a 10-day trip, and they would take them to the Bedouins and to the churches in Tel Aviv, stop into the Kotel, um, check out some museums, and that was it. And people weren't leaving with uh, Jewish identity, which was the, the goal of the birthright supporters. So they started, what, what they put into place back then, I don't know what the rule, what, what's now, back then they put into place that you also had to, on your trip, anybody who ran a birthright group had to give a Shabbat uh, experience to the group. They had to experience Shabbat, which meant they had to have Kabbalat Shabbat and a Friday night dinner. So that had to be included in the 10-day trip. That was... Huh? That's it? Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah that they had to... That, that was it. That was it. So there was a guy learning part-time in the mirror who somehow caught on to this and knew some secular tour guides. And what he did was he started... Um, he got together a bunch of young uh, couples in Kolel. And he said, listen, there's tour guides. There's secular tour guides running these trips. They don't keep Shabbat. They don't know how to run a Kabbalat Shabbat or a Friday night dinner. And he arranged... He got a, a few of us, maybe 10 young couples, and he called up these secular tour guides, and he said, I know you need to give a Shabbat experience. I'll send you a young couple to spend Shabbat wherever you are, and they'll run the services and, and have, have dinner, and it's off your, it's off your plate. And we're not doing anything else. That's, you know, unless you want us to. If you want us to do anything else, you know, we're here. We're st- wherever we are, we're stuck for Shabbat. So, you know, it's, you know, whatever it was. So he, he uh, Zelda and I joined in to this, and we went, on, I think we went on three or four or so, uh, different uh, weekends in different uh, kibbutz uh, areas. And um, one of the Shabbos afternoons, so we were stuck there for, for Shabbos, and one Shabbos afternoon, um, we, I had a session with them. Like I built a, a you know, a, a relationship with them over over the suit on Friday night and and Shabbos afternoon we decided to have a conversation about Jewish identity and what it means we weren't allowed to talk about Torah or anything else you weren't allowed to like no from kite we were allowed to talk about Jewish identity that was that was the that was the idea so this concept came up and one of the young ladies on the trip she said well you don't consider what Jewish identity you're Orthodox you don't think I'm Jewish anyway because uh, my parents converted reform. So no need to talk to me about Jewish identity. That was her opening remarks when we were going to sit down and discuss Jewish identity. I was like, oh man, like, what's going to happen now? So, so Hashem helps put things that work in, in your head. 
And um, so I said, well, you said, you just said that I don't consider you Jewish. What is Judaism? You tell me, what is Judaism? How, how do you define it? She said, well, it's cultural, it's important, and, you know. So I said, if Judaism is cultural, I totally am in that you're part of our culture. You're part of our culture. You know, you're eating bagels, you're, you're doing the culture, but the way you define Judaism, I'm completely with you. I just have a different definition of Judaism. I def- the, if you would open up a dictionary and we would write a definition, I would have a different definition. She said, okay, how do you define Judaism? I said, the way I define Judaism is somebody who's responsible to keep God's Torah. Somebody's responsible to keep God's Torah and follow in his ways. Do you fit that definition? She said, no. So I said, okay, so you also agree that according to my definition of Judaism, you're not Jewish. So we all agree that according to the way you translate that word, you're Jewish. I'm with you. And you agree to me that you're not Jewish. According to my definition of Jewish, so we're all on the same page. So, huh? Not brilliant. Hashem put this in my mind. But listen to, but the, 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 these kids are thinkers. These kids, they're, they're young men and women. They were in their 20s. So one of them says, well, I'm born Jewish and I don't follow God's Torah and His ways. Well, do you think I'm Jewish? So I said, absolutely. Absolutely. He said, why? What's the difference? I was like, Hashem? Baruch Hashem. So I said, listen. Um, what I could think of is as follows. I said, this, I said, it's a good question, but this is what I think. I'll just say with you what I think. What I think is that if you're born in the United States to U.S. citizens, you are a citizen. That's it. If you come from a different nation to the United States and you want to become a U.S. citizen, you have to understand our constitution. You have to pledge allegiance. You have to you have to learn our national anthem. If it's not in your blood, if it's not in your blood, so then there's more learning that has to be done to put it in you. So I said, the Talmud says, I said, take Talmud for you want. This is how I live my life, right? If the Talmud says something, we're going to strive to understand it, that every child that is grown inside the womb of a Jewish mother has learned the Torah whether or not the mother knows the Torah, right? Every Jewish child growing inside the womb, an angel teaches Torah to this kid. When this kid's born, if you're born Jewish, you're Jewish, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you know the Torah, it's in your blood. But now you want to come join the people. It's like joining, you have to, when you take on a citizenship, you have, to, you have to see that you're committed. And that's the difference between somebody who's born Jewish and somebody who's not Jewish and wants to join. But it doesn't change how I would define the responsibility of Judaism. Again, responsibility of Judaism. What does Judaism mean? One who is responsible to follow in the ways of Hashem and His Torah. That, that I'm consistent with. And they were fine with that. You know, a little, you know, a little bit, because I was, I was stating how, how I view it. But it opened up, it was such a, it, was, it really opened up the conversation. It started out very rough, and Hashem gave me a lot of siyad dishmaya. And it's, I don't know, sometimes like you don't know how things pop in. Um, I, I share a story, I mean, I'm not even around that long, but one story, I, I for sure have shared it here, but it, it, I, I, I laugh at it whenever I think about it, because I'm like, I don't know how my, you see Hashem putting ideas into your head, that you didn't, there's no way, there's no way you thought of it. No, it's impossible. It's an absolute impossibility. There was a woman that called, that, that called up 
a number of years ago, for sure shared this at a Perky Um Her family was having a bar mitzvah in her shul. She was some sort of reform cantor, I think. Um, and uh, it was like a, a cousin was making a bar mitzvah here. And she asked me if I would be uh, offended if she wears a talit in the women's section. She wears talit in the women's section. That was her, that was her question. Okay. So, right away I was like, no, I ought to be offended. You know. At the same time, I'm thinking to myself, I'm picturing like everybody here sitting there and somebody sits next to you with a talit. It's like, I didn't know how people would take it. I didn't know how people would make somebody else uncomfortable. And, and this is what came down from heaven. Totally <laughs> nothing, okay? What, what came out of my mouth was as follows. I said, to be offended? Absolutely not. Go ahead, gesundheit. hate. I think it's incredible. But I will mention, as, the, as a rabbi, I'll mention a piece of Talmud that perhaps the two of us should keep in mind when deciding whether or not to wear the talit. And that is that the Gemara gives an incident of one of the great Tanayic sages who always walked around in black shoes. Now back then, black shoes was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of mourning. People would, so why did he always wear black shoes? Because he wanted to always remember the temple. He wanted to always remember the temple. So he wore black shoes. Everybody else wore I guess, leather sandals, right? He wore black shoes. And all the other sages rebuked him. And they told him, Mechzi kiyuara. It, it smells of arrogance. If you're wearing black shoes, when everybody else is wearing regular sandals, it kind of looks like, even though that's not your intention, it looks like you're more mournful over the temple than anybody else. Yeah, that's how it, it's not your intention, but that's how it comes across. Right? It comes across. So they rebuked him. They said, if it's not normal, and this is part of Tznias, right? This is part of Tznias. Like, you could be you could be Tznias in the wrong way. It's not Tznias. If you're so f- religious in your Tznias, that's not Tznias. That stands out, and that's not called that. That's attractive now, right? So you could. So they told Nafsikiyur. So I sat there. I said, I just want you to know. I know you're. A big chazanit. I said, you're for sure much more religious than anybody in my congregation. So for you to wear a talit, I think the other women are not as observant as you. They're not as religious. They're not, you know, they're not as spiritual. So for you to wear a talit, and I was, huh? it's not, I'm telling you, it's not. And I, I said, I'm just putting it there. Nobody's going to be offended. I but it's just it, it's a it's a little too religious for the people who usually daven in my shul. <laughs> I'm telling you, there's no way I thought of this. I, I promise you, I didn't think of this. I didn't. She did not wear a talit. Not wear a talit. No. But I spoke to her on Shabbos. Wonderful person. Fantastic person. Really, really well intentioned, well meaning. I, I have zero. Like, there's nobody did anything wrong here whatsoever. It was just one of those. Um, you know, one of those things where it kind of came a little bit, uh, you know, could have come a little bit to a head, but even if she would have worn a talit, you know what, fine. 
And I think we should all be like that. If somebody comes in, Peseder, fine, that's their thing. It's not us here. It's not, nobody's coming here to do anything wrong. Very, very well-intentioned. But Hashem, for some reason, uh, didn't want that to happen that Shabbos, so he had me say this. As, as I was talking, I'm like, I, was, I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, what are you saying? I'm like, what? Like, Gemara? I was like, Hashem, just like, it's, it's such a fascinating thing. My mother would t- talk to me about this all the time, about drushas and speeches. She's like, Menachem, she's like, you, you just learn, try to share what you know, and pe- the, your kehilla will get, they're fine. They're worthy of a good speech, they'll get a good speech. Like, don't, don't be so into yourself. Like, take it easy. Like, you know. That, that was your thing. And you find, the imam is fine. Like Hashem, when you work with the Kehillah, you work with people, call Yisrael, you know, he, he's, he just does it. It's such a fascinating concept. Yeah. I still have a problem with the Kohen marrying a divorced woman and being okay. Being there, not being okay. It's valid. It's, well, but still, it, it's allowed. No, it's not allowed. No. no. He loses his, his responsibility. It's not allowed. In, but he, loses his oh, he cannot go huh? up to the Torah. No. So there are restrictions. Yeah. There are, not in the Torah. There's no Torah restrictions he, on him. He, he doesn't lose his status as a going. No, no, he doesn't go no. up to give brothels, does he? No, we don't he let him. Up, we don't let him, but we don't let anybody who... We don't let anybody who publicly sins because it's an embarrassment to them. Yeah, that's what he loses out on is those Okay, but it's still valid. No, it's a it's it's a valid marriage. It's valid. It works. It works sometimes. I, I, and I, I know I know it bothers you, but I'm going to tell you. I think if we think about it longer, and I haven't, so I'm going to do it also. There's there's a very I think there's a powerful concept behind Hakadosh Baruch Hu allowing something like this to be a contradiction. I think there, I think there's a very important idea. Yeah. And had a relations, you know, with, with a non-Jew. Yeah. Okay, and now she's grown. Mm-hmm. And she's asked, can you go out with a co No, mm-hmm. you can't. It depends. Well, it depends. Yeah, but I mean, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. No, no but you're still saying, people, there, there's things that are wrong, but if you do it, you do it. And and you're, you're obligated. I'll tell you, but I'll, tell you uh, I'll tell you a ramification of this. Okay, we just came across this in our Dafyomi. And that is, let's say you have a situation like this, where you have a, a Kohen who does marry a divorcee, so the Bezdin is going to, it's valid, but a Bezdin will obligate him to divorce her, and there's no Ksuba. There's no Ksuba. She's not going to receive any Ksuba payment. That, that's one of the consequences of it. Why? A rabbinic Ksuba is there for women's protection. We don't want, since the way the Torah established a get, is that uh, it's in the husband's, Domain to give the get, so we don't want chas v'sholem anybody to weaponize that ability, and therefore, for to one one of the ways. There's a lot of ways, and that's this is perhaps a sheer that we should be giving in and of itself. There's a lot of ways where women throughout society have been looked down upon, and halacha puts into place a lot of uh, obligations that does not allow that to happen. One of the things the sages put into place is aksuba. To counteract a get, what we tell a husband is, you want to give a divorce, right? Or you want to, it's not just a candy machine. You can't just divorce them. You can't just marry somebody, use them, and get rid of them. There's going to be a, a, a payout. There's going to be a nice amount of money and along with other responsibilities every time you marry somebody. That's what's going to come along with it. 
we don't want Aksuba's uh, a way to keep a marriage intact as opposed to make it easier for somebody to get divorced. By a Kohen marrying a divorcee, there will not be Aksuba because we actually want them to get divorced. Since it's valid, so therefore, we, therefore the rabbis did not enact their Aksuba in that place. But it's valid, it works. But since nobody knows how Shem's point system, why would, why would the rabbis, why does this happen? It's not the rabbis. The, the Pasuk says, this is what we, we got on this whole conversation because it says, verse 4, Lo yitama ba'al ba'amav lehechaloi, that a husband who's married to a woman who is impure, he made himself impure for a, a wife who's not fitting, he's not allowed to attend her funeral. But that means she is his wife. So the Torah is specifically telling me it is a valid marriage. The rabbis did not make it a valid marriage. The Torah, the Torah Hashem himself is letting me know this type of transgression will still be a valid marriage. So it's, it's in the verse. It's in the verse. Yeah. The Jairus cannot marry a Kohen. Correct. Correct. A Gioris. And a, right. and a divorcee is Jew. Huh? Divorcee is Jewish. It's not wrong with her. Nothing wrong with somebody. Just because you can't do something. The thing is, is that how did they get married? Were they married? How would they get married? How would who? A Cohen get married? How would Cohen marry a divorcee? How would they become married? A rabbi is not going to marry them, right? You don't need a rabbi. Don't tell anybody. Just get married. The two most important people at any wedding are the two witnesses. Okay, that's it. Yeah, you don't need a rabbi there. So Rabbi doesn't do nothing. But Agaris cannot marry. Oh, but it would be valid. It would be a valid marriage. You're just obligated to get divorced. You're obligated to. You're not allowed to be together. But it, but it would be a valid marriage. Oh, when I officiate at a wedding, you should know my number one responsibility at a wedding is to make sure that the ksuba and the tanoim are good, and that the witnesses that are chosen are kosher witnesses. My job is not to marry them off. As much as people say that, wow. and as much as of an honor it is, right. every chassan who talks to me, every couple that comes, they're getting married, they're like, what is the, what is the most honorable you know, uh, thing to give somebody at a wedding? I say, if you want to know truthfully, make sure you have good witnesses. Right. Make sure your witnesses are, are kosher v'yosher. You know, <laughs> make sure they're, they're, they're on the straight and narrow. Everybody else, no, your rabbi's not that great. You say, you got, you got good witnesses, you got a good ring, you, you know, they, they witnessed it. But civilly, yeah. according to the state of Missouri, to sign the, the yeah. civil uh, marriage certificate has to be a rabbi somebody who can officiate. From Missouri. Yeah, that's true. But we're dealing with halachic, halachically. But so she's uh, so uh, Rabbi Sendaich is asking, how could you get married? No rabbi is going to marry you off. I said, so they didn't ask a rabbi to be there. They did it by themselves. They got two witnesses, two friends, and they put a ring on her finger, and, and that's what they did. And then afterwards, you ask. That's, that's how it works. Do what you want, then ask. You know, okay, so ask afterwards. Okay, here we go. Let's 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 keep going. Some interesting conversations. Let's get back into the parsha. Um, okay, so kedoshim you lay lay kehem. They should be holy to their God, referring to kohanim. Every Jew is supposed to be holy. The kohanim have an added level. Of kedusha, but like a chalu shame like him, and they're 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 not allowed to create a chil hashem. Doesn't seem to be opposites. Kedoshim, you you should be holy, and don't make a chil hashem. Well, what if I do nothing? Yeah, what if I do nothing? It says, do make a kiddushem and don't make a chil hashem. Well, what if I don't do kiddush hashem, and I also don't do chil hashem? 
What if you have a Kohen that's doing nothing, right? It's a fascinating verse. You should be holy, and you should not make a chil. Okay. What about nothing? Nothing. Just don't bother me. I'm, you know, I'm a Kohen sitting in my apartment, and I'm good. I'm not dealing with holiness. I'm not dealing with chil Hashem. So, this is a, a, a very important message that the Musr leaders, uh, specifically I saw this in a Sefer by Rabbi Yaakov Naiman. He says this, this verse is a message to Kohanim and every Jew, which is that the, Hashem here is letting us know you, there's no such thing as being parak. The, the definition of our DNA built into our DNA is either we're making a Kiddush Hashem and fulfilling our duties and if we're not fulfilling our duties that by definition is a Chil Hashem. It's a very important concept. It's a very important idea. Sometimes we think to ourselves just leave me alone. You can't. You can't. Right? Lahavdil, so to speak. Um, I don't know the ins and outs but I know there's, there was a lot of drama a number of months ago somebody from the royal family in England like dropped out, like everybody's all big into this. The, the, the guy alone, he doesn't want to be a prince anymore. Like, what do you, buddy, leave him alone. Right? But it was like a statement. You're not acting like a prince. You're not acting like a prince. I, maybe there's more, I don't know. I, I, I'm not in a parchashem. But like, whatever it is, right? You have somebody who's like, it's, you're part of a family, you're part of an expectation. The fact that you're not fulfilling the expectation is a disgrace to their royalty, so to speak. So too, when it comes to Klal Yisrael, in a much more true way, so Hashem says, this is how a Jew is supposed to conduct themselves. You're supposed to make sure, to, we're supposed to be nice to people. Okay? Smile at people. Be cordial. Make sure people are, are comfortable in our, in our environment. Things of that sort. So, let's take a classic situation. I'm in the supermarket. And I'm standing there minding my own business. And maybe somebody might uh, look at it like I'm... Not Jew, like I'm not a nice person because I didn't greet them properly. I say I didn't do anything. What I do? Did I frown? Did I, uh, you know, did I frown at them? Did I growl? Did I? Was I not nice? No, but they see me with a yarmulke on my head, and I'm next to them in line. And by me ignoring them, even though I didn't do anything, it could be a chil right? Because they see I'm Jewish. There's like an expectation that goes along with being Jewish, and that's the Bali Musr teach us. Is, is noticed from this Pasuk in verse 6. You need to be holy because by definition, if you're not, that's going to be v'leyichalal. It's going to end up being a, uh, it'll end up being a chil Okay? And we find this idea, by the way, in 145. What? 1245? What? I felt like this was 20 minutes. I'm sorry. Um, we got you off topic. Yeah, okay, Baruch Hashem. That's fine going off topic. Just wrap up this idea. My goodness gracious, thank you, Hashem. Um, we find this idea that um, in, in Kriyashma, um, the Pasuk says, Ula avdo serve Hashem with all your heart. And then immediately afterwards it says, Hishamru lachem, watch yourself, pen perhaps your heart's going to turn away. You also find like two extremes. Right? It says, serve Hashem with all your heart and don't serve other things. It's like, okay, what if I'm not serving Hashem with all my heart and I'm also not like doing anything wrong? The answer is no, because part of being responsible, part of my responsibility is to do the right thing. And by not doing the right thing, 
That's a statement. It's a statement when we don't do the right things. We say this in Kriyashma twice a day. So again, Kedoshim Yu, and it's, it's either one or the other. There's no what we call being the parv. Uh, there's no being parv. Okay, we'll hold it here. Uh, Yashikayach. Have a wonderful job. See you. Yeah, yeah.